you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Matthew chapter 7. We've come to the end of Matthew 7, which technically is not part of the Sermon on the Mount, but rather the reaction of the crowds, of the listeners to this sermon. If you look at verses 28 and 29, here Matthew 7, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. What this means, as well as the implications, is what I want us to consider today. Many people, including those who do not accept the Christian faith, or any faith for that matter, would say that they are prepared to accept the Sermon on the Mount as containing self-evident, you know, some really good sayings, some good truths such as, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Love your enemies. No one can serve two masters. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Conveniently, they usually leave out the second part, or the part of the sentence that comes afterwards. So, as with the golden rule, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. That conveniently is left aside. Or on loving your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Or the impossibility of serving two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. That's set aside. But I would argue that their embracing of certain parts of the Sermon on the Mount is based on their assertion that the Jesus that we see here is a good moral teacher. He's really simple. He's at his best here. He's just giving us really good things to live by. Some would say that this is the real Jesus, the original Jesus, that all the other stuff was added later, like the miracles and stuff. We know miracles don't happen people would say. So they like the Sermon on the Mount. Here they say we hear an unsophisticated prophet of righteousness um, claiming to be more than a human teacher. He tells us to do, good, to do good and to love one another. Uh, a Hindu professor once said to Stanley Jones, who was an American Methodist missionary in India, the, God of, uh, the Jesus of dogma I do not understand. But the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross, I love and am drawn to. Uh, A Muslim Sufi, uh, by the way, the largest Muslim population in the world is in Indonesia. The second largest Muslim population in the world is in India. Most people don't realize that. This Muslim Sufi teacher said that when he read the Sermon on the Mount, he could not hold back the tears. He wept when he read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but they do not embrace Jesus as, as we find him in the rest of the Gospels. There are significant and serious problems with these views. First of all, they fail to take him or see him as a teacher correctly. And secondly, they fail to appreciate his teachings as a whole. I've said several times in this series, it's a package deal talking about the Sermon on the Mount. But it's in fact, the Gospels themselves and in fact, the whole Bible is a package deal. You can't sort of pick and choose those parts that you like. In essence, what we find is that people try to drive a wedge between the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, as they see him, and the Jesus of the rest of Scripture. 
the dogma, if you wish. We like, he said some really cool things here in the Sermon on the Mount, but the other stuff, yeah, we'd rather not deal with that. What struck the first listeners to this sermon, the crowds as they're called, they were amazed at his teaching, and it was because of his authority, unlike their teachers of the law. So, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The ESV and King James have astonished. They were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And indeed, I would say that if we take Jesus seriously and his words, should we not be amazed? Should we not be astonished as those crowds were? Two things stand out in these verses. First of all, his teaching, and secondly, his authority. The word teach appears three times in three different forms in these verses. His teaching, he taught, and the teachers of the law. When Jesus came and began his ministry, there had been thousands of Jewish teachers, teachers among the Jewish people. Many of them lived during the time of Jesus and were his primary opposition. With the rise of the synagogue during the exile, because the temple was no more, the reading of scripture and the understanding of scripture became very prominent. But there is one specific incident that stands out in the Old Testament. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is after the exile. They've come back to Jerusalem. Um, let me read part of it to you. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the prophet brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood six men, and the names are given. On his left were seven men. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, and there are 13 of them, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. So what we find is that Ezra gets up, they build a platform, and he reads uh, from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Before he does that, he praises the Lord. That is, he prays. The people respond by lifting up their hands and saying, Amen, Amen. Then they bow their heads down and worship the Lord. Ezra opens the law, the people stand up, and he reads from daybreak to noon. It's a long time. And then, and it's not explicitly said how this happened, but Ezra read, and then the 13 Levites would then explain to people what was being read. We don't know, did they do that while Ezra was reading or did he sort of stop you know if you're like if you're speaking in another country and you have an interpreter you have to stop while they interpret is that what was happening um, did they reread what Ezra had read did they all do this at the same time did they break up into groups uh, 
breakout groups, you know, do it that way. Um, what we do know is there were thousands of people, probably between 30 and 50,000 people who were listening. The people listening did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which is sort of a variant of Hebrew, not as deep in many ways. Um, and so as Ezra is reading the Hebrew Torah, there may be words they didn't quite understand. And so you have these 13 Levites who are, in fact, explaining to them what is being said. It has been argued that this day, and when this happened, was the turning point in Jewish history. From now on, the Jewish people would be known as people of the book. You know, prior to this, they had the temple, they had the sacrificial system, and the temple will be rebuilt centuries later. Uh, well, actually, they start then, and then it's completed, continues during the time of Jesus. Um, but they become people of the book. When they go to the synagogue on Sabbath, that's what they hear being read. And then someone explains it to them. Well, it's about 500 years between that day and the Sermon on the Mount. Almost five centuries. So you can imagine there have been thousands upon thousands of Jewish men who have tried to explain to the people, okay, this is what I read, this is what it means, okay? Jesus comes along and something is different. Something is very different. His listeners sense it. He taught with authority in contrast to the teachers of the law. Because by the time Jesus comes into the world, what you have are teachers who are referring to precedent. Well, Rabbi so-and-so a hundred years ago said this. And rather than saying this is what scripture says, they would look to the rabbis and those who had come before them as their basis of authority. Okay. They would quote commentaries, other rabbis. Jesus, on the other hand, as far as we know, had no training no religious training, he was not a teacher of the law, not trained by any rabbi. And he basically in the Sermon on the Mount is like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And yet at the same time, he's very clear. He says, I'm not, I haven't come to do away with the law. Okay? So he is in the tradition of the teachers, but he's very different. He teaches with authority. In one way also, there's a difference between Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. We've just finished studying the book of Ezekiel, an amazing book. But if there's one phrase we would associate with the prophets, it would be, thus saith the Lord. In other words, God has spoken through the prophet and they are saying to the people, this is what God says. Okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says at least 18 times, I tell you. Now, I, I want to be clear, in John chapter 7, uh, Jesus said, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. But when Jesus speaks, he is speaking the words that the Father has given him, and he says, I tell you. Uh, five times in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I tell you the truth. Six times, he says, but I tell you. It's a contrast between uh, what he says and what people have been told. The last one of which is this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
love your enemies. This is what you've heard, but I'm telling you this is the way that it is. What we hear in Jesus is not a commentator, but a legislator. In fact, many people have said, based on the Sermon on the Mount, he's the second Moses. He's giving the law again. He speaks with authority. We hear him commanding. We hear him prohibiting and promising based on his word and his word alone. Jesus is so certain of the truth and the validity of his teaching that at the end of his sermon, he tells his listeners that those who listen and do what he says are wise and those who listen and don't put into practice what he says are foolish. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. These words of mine, my words, Jesus is saying. Jesus has authority. And his authority is seen in other matters. Let's begin with the word that appears eight times in this sermon, that is kingdom. It's there at the beginning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We hear it in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then toward the end of chapter six, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And then finally, in the assessment of those who claim to be his followers, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what does this all mean? Uh, To understand this, I think we need to look at what came before the Sermon on the Mount. We need to back up to chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, this is after Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, okay? From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And in verse number 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, that is the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 1, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, that is the gospel. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news or the gospel. The ESV here says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And again, we might say, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? First of all, let's, let's be clear. Gospel seems to be a very New Testament word, but we hear it spoken of in the Old Testament. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This, by the way, is the passage that Jesus read. It's recorded in Luke 4 when he went back home to Nazareth, his hometown, and they asked him to read, and he took out the scroll and read from Isaiah 61. He sat down and he was going to give the explanation because that's what teachers did. You read from the scroll, then you sit down and you give the explanation. And he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus saw his work as preaching the good news, that is the gospel. The gospel part, I think we might claim to understand. Sort of a summary of the Christian faith. 
God loves us. We are sinners. Jesus came uh, to show us the way of salvation. He died for us to forgive our sins. He was raised from the dead as proof that he did what he was supposed to do. And if someone accepts the gospel, then he or she will be saved and get to go to heaven. The repent part, we might also claim to understand. Be sorry for one's sin, turn away from your sins, and to ask for forgiveness. I repent, I'm sorry. The kingdom part, we might be a little hazy on. Okay. Repent, the people are told, and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ben spoke to us more than eight years ago, um, but I still remember it that a king and a kingdom by extension are just very foreign concepts to us as Americans. Those who came before us fought to be free of a system with a monarchy. Now, we're not into monarchs, you know, we just don't do that, okay? And yet, it's something quite prominent in scripture. Did you know that the word kingdom appears 122 times in the four gospels? 90 times, Jesus is the one speaking. So I think it's sort of important if it shows up that much. But I would argue that repent, believe, gospel, kingdom, these can't be taken separately. And I think oftentimes we make the mistake of doing that. Our understanding, I would suggest, either lacks or misses the point of what Jesus is saying. Let me give you some historical background on these three words, repent, gospel, and kingdom. If you know your history at all, vaguely, uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC. Uh, the senators assassinated him because they thought he was getting too powerful. And for almost 10 years after that, actually more than 10 years, there was civil war. You have Antony and Cleopatra in Egypt, Crassus and Brutus who are in Greece. You have Octavian. And when everything is said and done, when the dust, dust settles, Octavian is in fact the winner. He comes out on top in 33 BC. He takes the name Augustus Caesar. He's actually the adopted son. He was a nephew, but the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Takes the name Augustus Caesar, but also the name Divi Filius. That is the divine son or the son of a god. In 31 BC, the dust is settling, he sends out a letter throughout the empire to announce that he's now in charge. If you wish, there's a new sheriff in town, okay? And this is what the letter said. The beginning of the word of glad tidings, and the word used there is gospel, euangelion, okay? So the beginning of the word of gospel that have come to all men through the coming of God to rescue the world, repent and believe. This, this sounds like it comes from the Gospels, not from Augustus Caesar. It's a public announcement that something, in fact, has happened. There's good news, okay? There's good news. There's gospel. That is, Octavian has been uh, victorious. A kingdom has come. The empire is now at peace. The emperor is now Augustus Caesar, and he was going to save the world. Repent meant, as it does in Greek, it's a word that we have mangled pretty badly over the centuries, means 
to give up. It means you're going the wrong way. You've backed the wrong party. Were you with Mark Antony and Cleopatra? Yeah, you need to repent. You need to give that up and turn to the right way. That is to follow Augustus Caesar. You're going the wrong way. You need to change your allegiances. It's a very political word. We see it as a spiritual religious word, but originally it was a very political word. Augustus says, Octavian says, accept me as emperor, believe in me, or suffer the consequences. Um, by the way, uh, Octavian had 300 senators killed. <laughs> you don't go my way? Okay, there are consequences. Repent, you need to change your party affiliation, be on my side, and believe in me. Sometime later, uh, 23 years later, uh, was the birthday. They're celebrating the birthday of uh, the emperor in uh, southern Turkey on the coast there. And we have an inscription. I'll just read part of it to you. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, gospel, for the world that came by reason of him. So stop and think a minute. You have this public announcement being made. It's a kingdom announcement. It's a king announcement. Augustus Caesar is now in charge. This is good news. This is the gospel, at least according to the emperor. Okay, And you're not going to go against him. Um, by the way, Augustus Caesar lived until 14 AD, which means half of the life of Jesus was under Augustus Caesar. And then Tiberius... Uh, would come along later. One must turn away from a previous path and accept the authority of this kingdom. That's what Augustus Caesar says. Now stop and think a minute. Consider the words of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, there's going to be a clash here, isn't there? On the one hand, you have Augustus Caesar saying, repent and believe in me. This is the gospel. I'm now the emperor. And Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus uses a very political word. And I think he intended it that way to say, God's rule is here. God has come to rule the earth. I don't think he used it as a religious term. I think we've sort of softened it by seeing it that way. A new kingdom is here. And a new kingdom means a new way of life. We're not going to be doing things the way we used to do them. Okay? There's a new sheriff in town. This is the way things are going to be. The Sermon on the Mount tells us of that kingdom. It tells us of how we are supposed to live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Beginning with the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us what God's kingdom, or that his kingdom is at hand, and what it actually looks like. How is the kingdom going to appear? 
Well, in the language of that time, here come the legions, okay? Here come the soldiers, the ground troops. Perhaps in modern terms, here come the tanks, okay? Uh, Octavian fought a number of battles to become the emperor. A lot of people died. So here is God's kingdom on earth. Okay, we're ready for the people to come in. We're ready for the ground troops. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it continues. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And it goes on. And one might say, this doesn't sound like any kingdom I've ever heard of. If you're going to take over, you've got to bring the big, bring the big guns. And yet what we hear from Jesus is something quite different. I think the point is being made, if we would hear it, that the kingdom of heaven is not like any earthly kingdom that we might imagine. Jesus shows us what the world will look like if God is king and how God's kingdom spreads throughout the world. Yet the, king, the, the crowds were amazed, they were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. What authority? Where, where did they get this? I don't know about you, but if somebody comes up and says, repent, here's the gospel, the kingdom, it's like, okay, that sounds an awful lot like what we've heard from Rome. And then he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're like, that doesn't sound like you have a lot of authority. Where did they hear the authority? Let me suggest some things. First of all, he implies that he is the Messiah. In verse 17 of chapter 5, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, he has been sent. He is the Messiah, the promised one. He refers to himself as Lord. And I want to be careful here because uh, one could argue that Lord was also sort of the equivalent of our modern sir. So you're showing respect, but you're not necessarily saying I'm the Lord, you know, I'm God, okay? But in seven, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, he's not just sir, a sir to be respected. He is, in fact, the Lord to be obeyed. He's more than a teacher who's giving us options, like, you know, this is the right way, this is the wrong way, and, you know, I, I would rather, if I had my rather, I, I want you to choose the right way. No. He is the master. He issues commandments, he expects obedience, and he gives warnings. You know, if you don't, okay, there are consequences. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not like Octavian is like who killed 300 senators, but it's very clear. You need to go, you, you've been going down the wrong path, okay? You need to come to the right path. And if you don't, there are consequences. You have the narrow way, you have the broad way. This leads to destruction, okay? This leads to life. Okay. As Lord, he could make pronouncements. You are the salt of the earth. Not like, I, I want you to be, or you need to be, or I hope that you will. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Or just consider the Beatitudes. What gives him the right to say that someone is blessed? I mean, seriously, what gives him that authority? Well, the people heard it. 
He has authority. He has proclaimed that the poor in spirit are blessed. Those who mourn, they are blessed. Those who are persecuted, they are blessed. Those who hunger and thirst, they are blessed. He is the Lord. He announces who is wise and who is foolish. He also announces, uh, or he refers to himself as judge. You know, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, okay. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me. You're out of here. You chose the wrong path. I don't know who you are. People read the Sermon on the Mount and they think, wow, these are just wonderful sayings. Aren't these wonderful? You don't have to be a Christian, but if you live by them, it'd be great. No, no, no. This is the message of the kingdom. One writer who wrote a book on the parable said, Jesus used parables and Jesus was put to death. The two facts are related. Why was this man crucified? The parables must be understood as part of the drama. No one would crucify a teacher who simply told pleasant stories to enforce prudential morality. Are you going to crucify the guy who who preached the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Yeah, they did. The parables are not harmless tales, but weapons of warfare. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Repent. Jesus presents himself as the gospel. You see, ultimately, the gospel is about a person. When uh, Augustus Caesar sent out this proclamation, it's about him. We've got an emperor. I'm in charge now. I am a divine son. Okay? I am the son of a god. Okay? And as time would go on, the Caesars would, in fact, be worshipped as gods. Jesus is the gospel. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The gospel is the announcement of a kingdom, which means that there is a king And the Sermon on the Mount, we have a presentation of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't just wonderful things to live by. This is the gospel. This is kingdom living. So if we, in fact, are the people of God, if we have repented, we realize, boy, I was going down the wrong way and I have repented. I have, by God's grace, come to the right way and put my faith in Jesus. How are we supposed to think? We've changed ways, but what about our thinking? What is to be our worldview? You might say, what is a worldview? Let me give you a definition. Basic beliefs which provide a framework of understanding, a grid or matrix by which we comprehend reality and attempt to live consistently within that framework. To be human is to have a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody views the world through certain grids. Through certain grids, a matrix. There are certain assumptions that we have that uh, 
We don't really think about them. We just assume that they're true. Um, uh, I think everywhere that I have taught, uh, here uh, in the Philippines and Brunei, my first lecture is always on worldview. Because I try to explain to my students, you have a worldview, and you're going to be studying people who have a different worldview, and you're not going to understand them if you don't understand that the way you view the world is quite different from the way they view the world. Well, one of the things that I don't do in this lecture is present my worldview. I want the students to think about what is their worldview. Okay? The Lord willing, what I want to do in the weeks that follow is to present a kingdom worldview. Jesus has come into the world. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is our king. The rule of God has been established. How are we supposed to view the world? I would suggest to you that many people, many Christians, let me correct that, many Christians, I, I, I'm not going to question whether or not they're Christians, but they think like non-Christians. They say, well, I, I, I've repented of my sins, so they think of repentance as very spiritual, but they're still over here. They're still on the wrong path. They're still thinking like the enemy. Because Jesus said, you're either with me or against me. So how are we supposed to think? I would submit to you that the church in the last few centuries, perhaps more, has lost sight of the fact of the kingdom of heaven. We focus on getting people saved, getting people saved, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you know, telling them you've sinned and you need to repent of your sins, you need to come to Jesus. Um, and many people have, but then they just live their lives as they were before. In the Sermon on the Mount, we find that's simply not the way it's supposed to be. When we come into the kingdom, this is how we're supposed to be. We're to recognize that we are poor in spirit. We're to mourn over our sins. We're to be merciful. We're to thirst and, and hunger after righteousness. What we find in these chapters is how we are to live in the kingdom. But how do we view the world? How do we view reality? hopefully as kingdom people. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Again, in the weeks to come, I hope that we can look at this. And I would ask that you'd pray for me as I prepare the sermons for that series. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you are so gracious that you have condescended to present who you are and your truth that by your grace we can understand. You sent the Lord Jesus to live as a human being and live among us and to teach us. And he did with authority. But being human, we oftentimes uh, miss the point or somehow water down the message. And we think that the gospel is simply a matter of getting your ticket punched so you can get into heaven. You don't have to go to hell. It's so much more than that. We are kingdom people. 
think we've probably forgotten that. And as kingdom people, we're to think like kingdom people. And by your grace in the weeks to come, we will explore this. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who taught with authority, who spoke the truth. And ultimately, that's why he was put to death. We're grateful for his sacrifice. Again, we remember our brothers and sisters around the world, some of whom have been put to death for the truth. They're hated for no other reason than for the fact that they are kingdom people. They have a higher allegiance. We obey God rather than man. I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. By your grace, may we be astonished at it, amazed at the teachings of Jesus, not simply see it as pithy sayings by this traveling teacher. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.